It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Whitney Lordson. Today, I am sitting with the first guest I've actually recorded with in quite some time because I have taken the last few months to travel across the country, as I often speak about on the show. And Jeff, who's here with me today, has written a wonderful book with the title Reclaiming the Sacred. And Jeff, as I was preparing myself for for showing up to chat with you today. I was sitting outside my parents' home in Massachusetts, where I'm currently recording, and realized that these trips are my current way of reclaiming the sacred. And it was a really interesting thing to ponder this morning. I was sitting out having my coffee in my parents' backyard. It's a beautiful fall day in October, and my dog's walking around in front of me. And I just felt so in tune with that experience, which which felt really sacred. And then I started thinking about an experience that has felt really prevalent to me in 2023. This is my fourth time doing this specific annual road trip that I started in 2020. And it's been this unfolding, this evolution that's felt really organic and authentic to me. And I noticed this year, I don't know if it's a shift in the state of the world. I'm very curious to hear some of your thoughts on this. Or is it just that I'm noticing something that's been there all along? (laughs) And I started writing some notes on this to chat with you about. And and one that came up is that the more I reclaim for myself, the more I notice how hard that seems to be for others. And I notice this in the questions people ask me, for example, when I say that I travel cross country and I spend several weeks driving out here. And then I spend several months out here before I spend another few weeks going back. I mean, it's really become this three-month reclaiming for me, the sacred experience. And most people seem to feel confused about that. They ask me questions mostly about money, which is something you spend a lot of time on, right? thinking about money and happiness. And I've also noticed predominantly now in 2023, the return to the pre-pandemic states in a lot of ways, where the last few years I've done this road trip, it was surprisingly easy to meet up with people. It was surprisingly easy to get our schedules to match. And it wasn't until here in 2023 that I started to notice, wow, it's actually been really challenging to coordinate visiting people. And I thought, wow, there's a lot of that busyness, stress, tension, distraction. We've seemed to, at least in this context, start to move back into that place of focus on career and responsibilities in a different way that I think the previous few years post-pandemic It felt like a lot of people were prioritizing slowness and quality time with loved ones and more rest. And I'm curious if you're experiencing a shift right now, or maybe because you've been studying this for so many years, what are other people's 
relationships to, I was going to say the sacred, but sacred's also relative to each of us. So it's a little bit of a tricky question, but I think you know where I'm going with this. Yeah. So as I mentioned before we actually hopped on and started recording, when you reached out to me with the invitation to talk, I just felt a very strong yes. And part of it was the title of the podcast. And as I mentioned to you ahead of time, I think the greatest danger for us in this conversation is going to be how to stop it, like just however much time we have. And already in just what you were just saying, I have about 10 different really exciting directions that I just wanted to pop off and go and explore. But I think the one that sits the deepest with me right now that I want to acknowledge is when you talked at the very beginning about the title of the book and you and this trip being really, in a sense, being about reclaiming the sacred for yourself. The first thing that I want to acknowledge and appreciate is that the very word sacred is actually a bit uncomfortable for many people. And it evokes for people a sense of religiousness, which for many people then evokes a sense of doctrine or a lot of bad experiences. And I would say in many ways, a very limited and limiting experience of our wondrousness, of the luminous in the world, of wonder. For so many of us, our religious experiences did not lift us up into that more, but actually tamped that down. And for many of us, and I'm talking just anecdotally, but also statistically in the United States, droves of people who have left institutional religion. And one of the things that's come up for me with the book is that the title Reclaiming the Sacred felt and continues to feel so right to me. But there is, for some people, just an initial little hiccup there. And the cover of the book also, I picked an image that is set in the redwoods, and there is sunshine streaming in, and it's gorgeousness. And to me, it speaks about the sacredness of the world and of us and life. But you know what? For some people, it has a little tinge again of religiousness. And so I want to, first of all, just appreciate the way that you seem able to approach that word in a way that obviously connects with you, speaks to your own depth of experience of yourself and the world. And that for me is really a mirror image of what I'm going for and what I'm speaking to when I talk about reclaiming the sacred. It's not about sacredness according to some institutional religion or something that has been deemed of particular religious significance. For me, it's much more expansive than that. It's about what is, what is of the most fundamental importance in the world and to us. And for me, reclaiming the sacred is first and foremost about you and everyone, the sacredness of us and being able to experience ourselves and others as wondrous miracles moving through this wondrous, miraculous world. And it is about reclaiming the sacredness of our lives and the world as well. Because as you were sort of naming at the end there, I think that a metaphor that is apt for how most of us to one degree or another live our lives, it's as if we're sitting on the edge of the ocean or at the top of a mountain or beneath this blanket of sky of stars, and we have a bag over our heads. And we're doing the best we can to make the best of our lives, but we've got this bag over our heads. And the bag can, in terms of how that shows up in many of our lives, can be different things. One of the key things that I focus on in the book, as you mentioned, is money and possessions, materialism. Again, anecdotally and just research-based, what we lose when that becomes a priority in our lives, when it becomes a priority in the culture around us. But in many ways, reclaiming the sacred is about 
exactly what you said. It's about being able to slow up and pause. And perhaps even that word sacredness can be an invitation for someone to just notice within themselves or in the world around them and just lift that bag up a little bit and peer around and see a little bit more because in many ways that is our natural state. The research shows our natural state is that we generally are happy beings. And it was Rumi, famous Persian mystical poet, who wrote something along the lines of, do not seek for love, seek instead all of the barriers that you have erected within you to love. To me, that just nails it so exactly. I think that we are wondrous beings living in a wondrous world, which is not to deny the hardship either. But when that's our baseline starting point and we lift that bag up, it really is about what are the barriers? What is that bag and how do we remove that so that we can be more present day in and day out, moment to moment with the sacredness of ourselves and this world? It's so beautifully said. And so many things keep coming up in my mind. I'm, I'm grateful for this conversation because I think there's a lot of associations many of us are going to have. And it's very relative for each of us what this speaks to. For example, I didn't make a connection between sacred and, and religion on at least a conscious level because to me, the sacredness is a lot of what you're describing, that word wonder is really wonderful. Even the picture you're describing of the redwood forest, like I find nature very sacred and healing. And there's part of me that as a, before this conversation, during this conversation, reflecting a lot on these barriers. And I've gone through all these different waves in my personal life, professionally, as I research and really put myself in this world of wellness and well-being and thinking about these issues all the time. And there are moments where I feel like it's so easy. Like, why is this so hard for someone to lift up the bag and to peek out even? I mean, sometimes that feels very far away from people. It's a privilege, though, that I've been able to do that easily. I have recognized that more and more while I understand what privilege means to begin with. And I think for a long time, because I've had that privilege of it being easy for me, whether that's a personality trait, whether that's about my circumstances in life, it's likely a combination of, of it all, that I can take the bag off like that. And those moments where I think, why aren't other people lifting off the bag <laughs> off their heads? Why are they choosing this? But then I've recognized, mostly through research, because it's not a matter of opinion, actually. It's sometimes a matter of facts and statistics that a lot of people don't have the privilege or even the ability, the choice to take the bag off. And I guess my question through all the research you've done is, how do you know whether it's your internal situation or your external circumstances that are creating that barrier? Sometimes I think there is a matter of like, moving through internal resistance, in other words, like I'm scared to lift off the bag. I'm scared to peek out. I'm scared to tap into my sacred. So to clarify more, it's how do you know when it's in that internal resistance versus it's truly an external situation? And, and there's a reason you're not taking the bag off that's beyond you. Yeah. I think I want to dive into that by first creating a bit of a foundation, which is the heart of at least where my book begins which is to provide a context for where are we at in terms of wellness and happiness in the United States and how does money tie into that? Because questions of privilege and opportunity, I think, tie in very directly with that. 
we in the United States, our measures of our well-being and happiness since they were first really recorded in the 1940s have been in a consistent decline. That is against the backdrop of spectacular financial and, if you will, material gains, possessions. I mean, we in the United States today live amidst material wealth that was beyond the imaginations of 300,000 years of our ancestors and is still beyond the reach of most people throughout the world today. People in the 1940s, again, I mentioned that was a benchmark for us in terms of when we started measuring this. Happiness has been in decline since then. Let's keep in mind that people in the United States in the 1940s most of them had never heard of a television. A phone was a luxury. Indoor plumbing, a third of people did not have indoor plumbing. Today, if you went and showed someone a house or an apartment that didn't have indoor plumbing, that would be a non-starter. It would be offensive. Why did you even waste my time showing this to me, right? And yet people then were on average happier than we are today. And I said, despite these massive material gains, but in many ways, what the research shows and what we might tease out on an intuitive level is that there's actually a relationship between those. One of the foremost psychologists of happiness, Ed Diner, noted at one point that materialism is toxic for happiness. That wasn't just his opinion. That was his lifetime of him being one of the foremost researcher in this area. Money overall psychologists and economists have done extensive research on this. And the consensus is that it accounts for about 2 to 4% of our happiness. Now, to be clear, if you cannot meet your basic needs, if you are hungry and do not have shelter, do not have access to basic health care that you need, then additional money does boost your happiness. But once you have your basic needs met at a very simple level, additional money does very little or nothing for your well-being. What's problematic here, though, is that when we continue to focus on money and possessions and to prioritize those kinds of things in our lives beyond those basic needs having been met, we are not only not adding to our happiness through additional money and possessions, but we are missing out on so many other opportunities to tend to those things that really do nourish our well-being. And those other things are so important. I already mentioned money being only 2 to 4% of our happiness overall. But to drive that home even further, even for people who cannot meet their basic needs, many of those other factors are still more important. So you have people living in extreme poverty. It's not to romanticize what it's like to live in poverty and all of the things that, that tend to come with that. But it is also to be realistic about the fact that most of our ancestors and most people throughout the world today despite the relative complete lack of money and possessions that they have, still tend to live happy, if not extraordinarily joyful lives. And this is true even for people living in extreme poverty. In fact, it was Ed Diner who once pointed out very eloquently that it is a really a powerful reminder of our own bias that we would assume otherwise, that we would imagine that someone living in extreme poverty can't live an extraordinary life full of love and joy and wonder. And so in your question about how do we know sort of where that bag is, is it internal, is it external, and what are the opportunities or privileges that we each have to remove that bag, I want to start by first of all acknowledging that for many of us, the circumstances in our lives are incredibly challenging, places we find ourselves, and the material needs that we face, as well as, as you well know, the topic of this podcast very much about emotional trauma that we experience and all those kinds of things. So it is not in any way to minimize that, but it is also to, in a sense, democratize happiness and well-being, to liberate us 
from some of the really devastating, and I would even say violent, assumptions of this culture about where we should be orienting ourselves if we want to live better lives. Because to a very large degree, it's not about more money and possessions. It's actually about liberating ourselves from those expectations and the sort of cultural norms that exist around us. And so I think that just one part of lifting that bag a little bit, just taking a little bit of a peek, is just from the get-go, just recognizing that that we each have a tremendous capacity for joy and wonder and to live exquisite lives, largely regardless of our financial and physical circumstances. Again, without minimizing that, but for now I'm focusing on that half a glass that exists right before us that's ready for us to drink and take in. Why is it that despite our capacity, because I, I see that too, but again, I'm still, I'm still peeling back the layers to make sure that I don't equate my own capacity with others. Unless you're saying, do we all have equal capacity? I guess that's the first point of this is something you said earlier, like we're doing our best. And I was sitting with that for a moment wondering like, well, I think our best is all very relative. And given that it's extremely prevalent for people to have mental health challenges. In fact, I'd be willing to bet mental health is an issue for the great majority of people, if not all, right? I mean, you're hard pressed to meet someone who's not experiencing anxiety or depression on some level, whether not necessarily the clinical definitions of it, but sadness, loneliness, fear, like all of these emotions perhaps are always going to be part of the human experience. And they're not necessarily barriers, but I feel like they're, they can be so strong that maybe they impact what our best is and what our capacities we have. So it starts to feel very complex. And then when you add on the issue of privilege, and again, as I learn more and more about systemic issues, you know, there's a whole nother level of an experience that somebody has based on the color of their skin, based on the way that they speak, based on who they love, based on where they live, based on who they vote for. Like there's all these other factors. And I can't assume that somebody who in very different circumstances than me, I can't assume that my best is going to look the same as theirs. So then how do you even navigate things if it's very relative? <laughs> I think we really want to hold up two things at the same time. It can be sort of a paradox, but it feels very important to me. First of all, to acknowledge that those barriers exist. And to some degree, as you mentioned, for all of us, there are certain barriers, right? I also want to tell a story, and her name is escaping me right now. Hopefully, it'll come back to me later. But a very prominent yoga instructor tells a story about being at a conference in India with the Dalai Lama. And it was a small group of people, and they went around and they each got to ask a question. And she asked about self-hate, self-loathing. She wanted to know what his experience was with that. And he turned to the interpreter to make sure he was understanding and asked a few questions and then came back to her and said, I'm not sure I'm understanding what you mean. Could you clarify a little bit? And she talked about her experience, her own personal experience and working with clients about the ways in which so many of us just have taken on these layers of, you might call it shame or self-hate maybe more milder would be like insecurities. These ideas we have about ourselves that have somehow been planted in us by other people, by the culture around us. He again talked to the interpreter for a while, and then he turned to her and he said, I thought I had a really good understanding of human nature, but this 
completely boggles me and turns that on its head. I don't understand this term self-hatred. How can you feel that way about yourself? We all have this inherent, and in Buddhism, there's a specific word for it that isn't coming to me right now, but that we are each inherently a spark of the divine. We are wondrous. We are miracles. That story for me is important because it speaks to the potential for living beyond and outside what might seem to be just sort of a norm or even a basic human condition of shame, of feeling inadequate, right? Or of feeling that a life of exquisite wonder and delight might be elusive or beyond some of us. It's just not, I'm not made for that, or my life, my circumstances aren't made for that. I want people, I would say that I expect that I will go to the grave still being impacted by some of the shames that I've internalized, some of these self-concepts that got in there that are just negative, that make me feel bad about myself, that inhibit my brightness, right? So there's a compassion and a patience that comes with acknowledging that, that these things are deeply rooted in us, and it's not quick or easy, and they might be with us for the rest of our lives. doesn't mean that we can't move on them, right? But we can be compassionate and patient. And at the same time, though, I think it's revolutionary to hold out there this possibility that that's actually just completely cultural. And you inherently, as a being, this is what you are. You are wondrous. You are made of love and delight. You are a miracle. Now go out there and live that extraordinary life that is waiting for you. It's both of those, right? And that's a little bit what I'm referring to when I talk about the happiness and well being being something that is largely accessible to all of us, regardless of our material circumstances. It's again, it's the glass is half empty to a certain degree. I just happen to not be focusing on that right now because I think the other message is so important. But there are clearly things that come along with poverty and extreme poverty that do impact our well-being. And I'm not trying to romanticize that. But again, to acknowledge that even people living in extreme poverty, there are other factors that are much more powerfully determined their happiness and well-being and satisfaction with their lives, I think is a revolutionary starting point for all of us to acknowledge and recognize and move from that place. So it's holding both. It's the patience and compassion on the one hand, and also a sort of bottom line readiness to step into sacredness, each one of us, and live this singular, spectacular life that potentially is out there for each one of us, right? The holding both part is really helpful for me because I, I notice sometimes I get drawn into as much as I like living the in the gray area, I still find myself in the black and white mentality. And the holding both is such a great framework. I think that our society, I mean, that's a great example of, of how our society tends to condition us, taking sides, being polar, being... I mean, essentially, just you have to choose a side, and you're if you're this binary. Yeah, exactly, and that framework can be very damaging to us as individuals and in our relationships with one another. The assumptions that we might make about somebody, and it's a constant learning and reminder for me because I, I actually do live in both. I kind of uh, ironically, as the more I explore this, like I can live in the gray area, and sometimes I live in the black and white. 
you know, like, and I yet I'm kind of in both states at the same time. And I'll have a conversation with someone like you and remember, oh, yeah, I can have both. And it's interesting how I think a lot of us tend to believe that we have to, there's always going to be some sort of a compromise. We can't have our cake and eat it too. In some settings, that might be true. But in other times, I wonder, why can't we have our cake and eat it too? <laughs> you know? Not out of greed, but simply that life is not a very binary experience. Yeah. What is being suggested to me by what you're saying, and it, it speaks to me deeply, is the idea that maybe we really are meant to be fed by one extreme or the other at different points. For example, maybe there are times where Bell Hooks, a wonderful poet and author and self-identified Black woman who grew up amidst a certain degree of poverty, and she has very powerful messages to people about each of us being wondrous in our capacity for love and living extraordinary lives. But she very pointedly said that it's not simple work. It's not simple to overcome so much of the negativity that we've absorbed within ourselves, and that if we make it sound simple, then it's going to be discouraging. And so that's an example of maybe there are times where we just need to relax into the compassion and the patience and be like, okay, for today, this is just who I am or where I'm at. And then maybe some days we need to just wake up and look in the mirror and be able to say and feel truthfully that I am extraordinary. And look at this incredible life around me. Look at there's color, breath, birds, sky, my body, I'm moving. Just that as a starting place, maybe some days that's the wonderful place to lean into, right? And so maybe some days we're in the, we can hold both, we're in the gray area. Maybe one day we just swing to the other and swing back to the other another day. And maybe that's exactly what we just need, right? Yeah, I'm sitting with that and really noticing like there's a lot of contemplation there. And I certainly experience that a lot. And it's, it's really, it's interesting to slow down. I had a, an aim for the beginning of 2023, which was to slow down more. And now that the year is starting to come to a close very rapidly, as it often does, I'm looking back and I'm noticing times where I have slowed down. And I've also noticed that it was quite challenging to slow down. In fact, it almost feels like 2023 was me starting to slow down, not necessarily achieving it. And it's really hard in a world that's so fast paced were encouraged to move faster and faster in all different ways. I was reading yesterday about the concept of time compression, which was interesting. I'm still trying to understand exactly what that means. But essentially, there's a references to how fast things start to move. Of course, the older we get, life seems to go faster. Our experience of time shifts. But also, the way that the world operates, the developments we have, are shifting our experience of time. and. For me, slowing down, a huge part of that involved spending less time on my digital devices or, or using them differently. A huge thing I identified at the beginning of this year was I wanted to step away from social media in as many ways as I felt like I could comfortably move through life without using it. And that shifted my relationship to time. And that did help me slow down in some ways because I was finding that I would be dr so drawn into the types of social media I was using and the types of, and the ways in which I was contributing to social media. It essentially took me out of the present moment and it put me in almost like this weird virtual reality state of being 
where like I'm sitting there staring at this advice and the world is going on around me and I'm not as in tune with it. I found it harder to be present when I was on social media, which is a very obvious statement because that's, you know, it's like most people experience that. And the more I stepped away from it, though, I noticed so many people around me were absorbed in social media. It's kind of like I started this conversation that it's an interesting experience when you slow down and notice how fast everyone else is going around you. And that can actually start to feel very lonely. Like, wow, I want to slow down, but I also want to be around these people that are moving so quickly. And it feels like the only way that I can have a relationship with them is if I move at their pace. And there was a big sacrifice that happened when I stepped away from social media is that I feel very disconnected from a huge percentage of people. There are some people I've barely heard from this year, which is very revealing because I stepped away from social media. And I realized our relationship was so connected to social media. And it was a sacrifice between connection and slowness and being present. And I'm curious about how that resonates with you if you've had similar experiences. Again, you've been diving into a lot of very deep things. You're understanding things on different levels. And sometimes when you make these choices or when you have these understandings, it really shifts relationships in an interesting way. Yeah. And once again, my mind already went in about 15 different directions of things that I just thought were so interesting around what you were saying that I wanted to think about or speak to. I think I want to start by maybe connecting back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of the money and possessions and the bags on our heads. And that will shift into a little bit more of what you're talking about. So what are the things that really do matter to our well-being? What does the research show around that? And what are our personal experiences that we're talking about here? So there was a really wonderful study done where they compared homeless people in Calcutta, India with homeless people living in Oregon in the United States. And as you might imagine, the homeless people in Calcutta, India, the objective circumstances of their lives was much worse. Their access to food and shelter, their access to health care, and the kinds of things that they were reporting that they were experiencing, whether it was like they actually lost a limb or they lost a family member, those kinds of reports were common. Versus in Oregon, they had much greater access to food, shelter, and weren't living these other kinds of experiences. And yet the people in Calcutta, India, were happier than the people in Oregon. And in fact, they scored positively in terms of their life satisfaction. The key distinction that was found between those two communities was that the people in Calcutta, India, generally had managed to maintain some kind of connections with friends and family that the people in Oregon had not. And in fact, the people in Oregon, when they were asked what do they need or miss most in their lives, more than food and shelter and other things like that, was human connection, connection with friends and family. This speaks to one of the most reliable factors. If you want to look at someone's life and guess how happy they are, the amount of time that they spend with friends and family, the number of friends that they have, but even more important than that, the quality of friendships, that's one of the most reliable predictors for how happy a person is. Now, I like to make the distinction between those factors that relate to the world around us and our lives and internal factors, because it's actually been found that internal factors are more significant than anything that's happening in the world around us. But for now, in terms of those things that you could observe or measure in a person's life, 
relationships is consistently perhaps the strongest predictor for how happy someone is. I think that maybe the experience I've been sharing about how different 2023 has felt for me traveling, it's possible that things have shifted. It's possible that we're going back to normalcy and and people's lives are going back to a rapid speed. I think it speaks a lot to my shift in awareness where based on a lot of research I've done, guests like yourself, I mean, that this human connection and community have been profoundly at top of mind for me this year. I really have been ramping up my desire to spend quality time. It also happens to be one of my love languages for those that know about the five love languages. I, I love just being with people and feeling connected to them. Even if that means sitting down to watch a TV show, the caveat is that when somebody's on their phone, it is so deeply distracting to me. I mean, it happened actually on this trip a few weeks ago. I was visiting a really close friend of mine who I had so many great experiences with. And yet, despite how connected I felt to this person, there was one time where we were sitting down to watch a movie and they were on their phone the entire time. And I was so distracted by that, thinking, wow, like, I don't understand. Like, why they're on their phone. You know, and I've noticed this a lot as I've shifted my perspectives about phone usage. I'm still in this state, and maybe this is just the process of change. When you shift something, this happened to me when I went vegan, for example. You notice everybody that's not eating vegan food. And then over time, I mean, I've been vegan for 20 years now. Like, I've gotten used to that. It's not a big deal. Like, when people eat animal products, there's some part of me that's a little like, upset about it. But most of me is like, I'm used to the upset or I'm used to, <laughs> and maybe I'm just not used to the contrast of my choice to put my phone away when I'm having quality time with someone versus it seems like the majority of people want to multitask. The majority of people think they can multitask. The majority of people don't see the disconnect between quality time and a device, whereas I've connected that. And not to say I'm perfect at this. I go through waves. Just we were talking about the binary side of it. Like it's not a black and white thing. There are periods of my life where I'll find myself absorbed in my phone and going back to social media and, and looking to my phone for the dopamine hits. Like I'm not perfect at this. I probably never will be, but I'm noticing it. That's the state. And so when you're talking about these human connections, it's a really interesting time because I think a lot of us know that. A lot, most of us have experienced how nourishing quality time is. And yet, it seems like a huge percentage of the population still chooses disconnect or a, a less connected experience. Right. This is a powerful bridge to a key area that I want to talk about, which is those internal factors that relate to our happiness and well-being. So I'm going to go there in a second, but let me start by just sharing some of the research around some of the specific things that you just named. A sense of time affluence is very powerfully correlated with happiness and well-being. And that's a term that's often used, time affluence, which is, do you feel, how much time do you feel like you have to do the things that are important to you, but also just your daily experience of it? There's a really interesting study, again, sort of paradoxical, which is that it was found that people who took time to volunteer or even just help someone at work, 
that act of volunteering and helping someone else actually boosted their sense of time affluence. They actually gave up a little bit of their time or added to their plate. But by taking that moment to connect and help someone else, it was just a pause and it was an affirmation to themselves essentially of, I have time to stop and help this other person or do this other thing. It's a, a way to sort of dive a little bit into deeper waters, which just soothes us and reminds us, oh, we have the spaciousness available to us to a certain degree, right? The research on social media is mixed, actually, to the degree that it is feeding what you sort of referenced, this addiction to stimulation and to the dopamine hit. Okay, not surprisingly, that's not a good thing. But there is a degree to which social media can have a positive role in our lives. And again, you, you acknowledge that to some degree when it comes to certain friends, particularly studies that have been done around say, older people or people who are a little bit isolated, social media can actually be a nourishing way of having human connection. So there is that positive aspect to it. There is also, especially like studies around teenage girls, it's been found that the more time they spend on social media, the less happy and well they are. And that has a lot to do with images and expectations, as well as maybe bullying and, and social conditioning, those kinds of things. Interestingly, though, overall, social media right now seems to be in a little bit of a, it cuts both ways. It's not a clear-cut positive or negative, depending on the circumstances. That is a place that people spend a lot of time. And for many people, it doesn't nourish us the way that, say, spending time actually talking with or being with a friend can nourish us and boost our well-being but it can still be a positive in our lives. When we were talking earlier about the bag that's over most of our heads, I think this is one of the forms that that takes, is when we dive into social media, when we dive into work as well. For many of us, it's a way that we actually distance ourselves from being present with the wonder and beauty and sacredness of the world around us. It's also interestingly a way that we distance ourselves from happiness because the research around work is consistent as well. And that is the less we work, the happier we are, which may not come as a surprise, but most of us don't live that way. Or most of us think that it's worth it because of maybe the prestige or the money and the material things. But we've already pointed out that that isn't really gonna do much for you. Even people for whom their work is a calling that's a, a very nourishing way of being in the world when your work is very purposeful. For those people, obviously, the relationship is a little bit different. But even then, on average, people who work more than 40 hours a week are less happy than people working 40. People working less than 40 are happier than people working 40, all the way down to about three to five hours a week. If you find yourself unemployed, not by choice, that does tend to have a negative impact on our happiness. But even then, what's been found is that it's not about the money or the possessions, generally speaking. It has that kind of a consequence as well, but it's more about our sense of purpose and a hit we take to our ego. So briefly to acknowledge that when someone loses work or is out of work, that does initially have an impact, which goes away over time. But that sort of exception aside, generally speaking, the less we work, the happier we are. And again, it has to do with a number of factors. It has to do with what opens up then that we can focus on our time, focus our time on. What are the things that really do nourish us? And it has to do with a little bit this fundamental thing that you've referred to of how present are we with ourselves, with the people around us, 
with stopping and smelling the flowers, just use the cliche, but truly how many times over the course of our day are we pausing and noticing things and feeling a sense of wonder, whether it's within or without. And for many people, work is where we spend more of our time than anything else except sleeping fundamentally over the course of our lives. And yet, for most of us, it's not a place that really does nourish our well-being. I said that this, for me, seemed like a great bridge to a place that's really important, I think, to talk about. And it's kind of the heart, I think, of your podcast, our emotional well-being. Because for many of us, social media and that sort of addiction to stimulation work and the addiction to consumption, the desire to always be out there shopping or thinking about what else we want to acquire or just that, again, that dopamine hit when we get, find something on Amazon and buy it and know that it's going to be delivered so quickly to us. There is an aspect of that that is about that addiction to stimulation. But for many of us, there is also an aspect of avoidance, right? It's a nice buffer between other things that we maybe are afraid of feeling or being present with. When I talk about inner factors, these are things like presence and wonder and gratitude and purpose. It's also about how comfortable we are with different emotions, which is something that I think would be wonderful to talk about that relates very much to the, the name, this might get uncomfortable. But the number one factor is what is the quality of our relationship with ourselves? How do we feel about ourselves, both on a conscious level or on a deeper unconscious level? It's what we were talking earlier about shame and negative messages. And for many of us, we have been overwhelmed with negative messaging about how little we matter, about how little our lives matter, or about how certain things about ourselves seem to matter so much and just aren't good enough. We aren't good enough. And so there's a way that numbing ourselves and distracting ourselves through work and consumption. And it's one of the critical factors that makes money important for so many of us, despite the fact that it does so little for us, is filling our lives, filling that space that otherwise might be a little bit uncomfortable. So I, there's a whole lot more that I could dive into about that, but I've also just said a whole lot. So why don't I pause a second? Yeah, there's so much here. And, and I'm examining my own relationship with this, because despite having a podcast about this subject and again, being so involved in this space, it doesn't make me immune from this. And it shows the humanity, you know, that this, a very big challenge, especially in our society and our cultures, the capitalistic pressures that we feel, the measures of worth and success, something that has really stood out for me in the past few years, just how I wanted to not participate in that as much as possible. <laughs> it's hard, though, you know, when you live in a country like the United States, it's a huge part of how things operate. As nice as it sounds to work less, there are certain ways that many of us have set up our lives that require us to contribute financially. There are choices we make about where we live, for instance, and the taxes. Like when I live in California, I've, I've only recently started to think, hmm, what would life be like if I lived somewhere else that had lower taxes because I'm paying a lot of money in income taxes? That's actually a very something that I've been contemplating a lot. I love living in Los Angeles for a lot of reasons, but recently I was just thinking, sometimes I feel like I'm working just to pay my taxes. <laughs> this in the past few weeks I was going through my budget and 
looking at my financial forecast as I brings me a lot of comfort just to like see where I'm going to be and recognizing how much it takes for me to just make sure that I'm paying my annual or my quarterly taxes and how kind of silly that feels at times. And yet I have to remind myself there's something that these taxes are giving me. There's the choice, like there's something I get in return potentially, but that's a whole nother subject we won't get into, but it is something that ties into this conversation and that like, what are we working for? Are we working for this sense of purpose? Are we working to pay the bills for the things that we want, the lifestyle that we want, the choices that we've made? I mean, the ripple effect of our choices that we might not even recognize how much it would cost. I mean, even having a dog right now, my dog's a senior dog and I'm expecting that these last However many years we have together, it's likely to cost a lot of money to give her a quality of life that I did not consider when she was a puppy. And But I've made a commitment and now I have to make a choices to make sure my income meets those thresholds of these important things in our lives, right? But then we go to, towards what you were pointing out, which is the difference between our basic needs versus this consumerism and how that impacts our relationship to each other and the world and our feelings. And I think it's something I try to put into check whenever I'm making a purchase. I mentioned to you before we started recording, Jeff, that I bought this mug a few weeks ago. And I remember looking at it. My first thought was, wow, that's a really cool mug. And I really like that company. And I would like to get this mug. I like the color. I like the style. I like the brand. The price was good. It was on sale. Great. But then there was the moment of like, I didn't walk into the store thinking I need a mug. That mug didn't exist in my mind. That urge wasn't, nothing was there until I just saw it. And then you factor in the sale. There's marketing there. Like it's going to be on sale to make it feel more accessible, to feel like a good deal. And even though the mug, I don't know how much it was, maybe like $15 or something, like not a huge expense, but it was still $15 that I could have put into my dog's health savings account that I have. And $15 might not seem like a lot, but I could spend $15 on groceries. If we start to break down this money and these needs. And I ended up really enjoying this mug and now I'm glad I bought it. But it could have also been something that went in my cupboard and I used a couple times a year and then ended up donating to Goodwill or something. And so this consumerism mentality of how do we make our choices and why? And are we doing it just because it feels good? Do we buy on Amazon because we associate Amazon with that dopamine hit of something coming in, in the mail? Yeah. How do we navigate that, Jeff, from your perspective? I think it's helpful, first of all, to acknowledge that you and I are having this conversation and we're slightly placing ourselves outside of that mainstream culture, right? And yet to acknowledge that we are submerged within the arguably the most materialistic culture that has ever existed. The amount of stuff that we not only have available, but that we want and the size of it that we want, the newness of it that we want, again, unprecedented in 300,000 years of human history, right? I would add to that part of how one can measure materialism is what are you willing to do or give up to get it? And we Americans have proven that we are willing to give up tons personally 
and to sacrifice so much in the world around us in terms of other people's lives, other creatures' lives, the environment. What we're willing to do to get a little more money and stuff is extraordinary and is unprecedented. I think it's important to acknowledge that up front because maybe it can give us a little perspective because we are of this society, we live where we live, and we get constant messages about how important money and stuff are to our well-being and to proving our own worthiness, in fact, our own purpose. So I just want to point that out because, first of all, to acknowledge it is difficult and For most of us, there isn't going to be just a night and day shift from living a fairly consumption-oriented lifestyle to being very much not consumption-oriented. For most of us, it's going to be little decisions that we make day in and day out. But to maybe just remind ourselves that, oh, right, my baseline for how I'm even making this decision is already so vastly beyond what most humans have ever even imagined. And now I'm sitting here trying to make this decision about skis, mug, vacation, home, car, computer, devices, all of this stuff. So yeah, for example, our comparison point might be the next door neighbor or that colleague at work who they just got all these new things. Our perspective isn't 99% of humanity that maybe we don't have as much contact with, but who have never seen some of these things before. Or again, our ancestors who lived quality lives. I mean, again, research that's been done We often have this concept of our ancestors and prehistoric humans living this kind of Hobbesian nightmare. It was awful, this existence. And the research actually tends to suggest that many of them were probably happier than we are today by the measures of things that really do matter in terms of our happiness and well-being and quality of life. Some of the things that we imagine that were horrible about their lives just didn't even exist. I mean, life expectancy, infant mortality was high. That was the number one difference between their lives and ours today. And that's significant. But if you survived beyond your childhood, you lived into, and I forget the number right now, but a fairly long life. I mean, longer life expectancy that many people have it throughout the world today, not as high as what we have in the United States. I'm not saying we're all going to go back and live that way instantly. Again, I think that one of the key things here is to try and keep this perspective as we're making these decisions to remember, oh yeah, look at what I'm swimming in constantly. And to maybe recognize that it's more about those choice points. It might be that decision to buy the mug and reminding ourselves, okay, I have this impulse to buy this and it's strong, but maybe I can at least remind myself that the research has consistently shown, and maybe my own personal experience as well has shown, that even when I've gotten some of these new gadgets, I'm actually not that much happier afterwards. I'm glad you got the mug. I'm not against people buying certain things. But we have these moments where we get to make these decisions. And one of the most significant that you named has to do with where we live and who we work with, because that sets so many expectations. If you go and buy that, I don't know, 4,000 square foot home, it's not only that you're making a decision that's going to impact you and saddle you for a whole long time going forward, but all of your expectations, what are the people around you doing and buying? What are their kids doing and buying? All of that is now set for a long period of time. So maybe at those key choice moments is when we can focus in and say, okay, right now I'm deciding what new car I'm going to get. I'm making a decision about whether I want to accept this promotion or switch to a different company or where I'm going to live. Those are opportunities where 
maybe we can't just dive out of all of this and live as the Native Americans did on the Great Plains before the Europeans came, which studies show that they lived one of the healthiest lifestyles of people in the past 2,000, 5,000 years in the Americas. But we have little choice points where we can maybe keep leaning in the direction of something that will nourish us a little bit more, right? And I'm just going to return to, I already mentioned the statistic about 2 to 4%. I think that's a really helpful anchor for people to keep in mind. Another one, when we talk about that bag over our heads, is that the research is clear that the more money and possessions we have, the less we are able to savor daily experiences and the more fleeting that happiness is. So there's something actually very concrete and right in our face that is available that's part of that choice. What am I choosing to focus on and orient myself towards? Is it the money and possessions? Or in turning away from that, what other things am I going to start to hear or feel or see? It's something that sometimes we have to experience one side of the spectrum, I think, to gain a lot of that perspective. Certainly has been for me. I've developed a big passion for traveling and now getting into camping and hiking and like a lot of these nature-oriented things. And what's fascinating about them is I've been noticing my draw to materialism a bit within all of that in the sense that I want to now get all the gear. <laughs> you know, like I found this mug I've been talking about at a store I went to that sells gear at discounted prices. And it's, I find joy going in there. I've been examining that joy, why I want to get all this stuff now for this new hobby I have, right? And I recognize actually a, a lot this year that I've been buying all this camping stuff, for example, buying things for my road trips. And it started to become a bit of a burden because now I have all this extra stuff that, yes, the promise is it's going to make me more comfortable. That's essentially what it comes down to is, oh, if I buy this mattress for my tent, I'm going to sleep more comfortably. But now I have this mattress that takes up more space in my car when I'm driving to get to the campsite. And that becomes a burden. And now I have to find a place to put this mattress when I'm not camping, which becomes a burden. And it's take creating more clutter. And there's all of this research about clutter impacting us. You know, like there is a ripple effect to the things that we choose for comfort. Just like you were saying, there's a, while I might not feel like I'm doing this to numb myself, what I am trying to numb is the discomfort in a way, the physical discomfort. And I am finding some sort of joy and, and stimulation for buying new gear that looks cool. I mean, honestly, this mug I bought is from a company that's done a really good job branding themselves in the outdoor world. And on a conscious level that I probably wouldn't have wanted to admit at the time of purchase, I thought, ooh, if I buy this mug, it's not only something I'm enjoying, but it's like a status symbol. Like I have a product from this company that most people know. And that shows that I know what this company is. And this shows that I am spending a little more money because their products tend to be expensive. It's like there's a level in which I'm making these decisions for reasons that really don't align with me on the deeper level. Right. So what the research tends to show is that I asked that question earlier, if money and possessions do so little for our well-being and happiness, 
why are they such a powerful draw for so many of us, central to our lives? And I'm going to say, really central to our society and government has set up its entire purpose very much. Economic growth, right? Productivity, those kinds of things. And there are a variety of reasons. I would summarize by saying that to a large degree, they are about filling the lack of the things that really do nourish our well-being. So one of those we talked about was maybe sort of deeper feelings of insecurity or shame. One way that it manifests is conspicuous consumption is the term, right? And we will spend a lot more money on products that other people will see than we do on products that they're not going to see, like cable company or choice of soap, perhaps, things like that. The things that other people are going to see, we care about more. And it is about the status of showing off like maybe how much money we have. It is also what you mentioned about identity, projecting our identity. So, hey, I'm an environmentalist, so I have these products versus the person who is maybe of a different political persuasion and has these maybe a huge things over here that they drive that make huge noise when they drive, you know, that they're showing off their identity. But what the research does generally show is that the more that we are living in this sort of positivity of our own lives, let's say, the more that we are, say, comfortable with ourselves and living with a sense of presence and wonder, again, really feeling generally positive about ourselves, the less impact these other draws have. You just tend not to care so much about showing off your environmental goods if fundamentally you're just feeling pretty good in your life. And if you're happy and don't have anything to prove to anyone, it's a little simplistic, but Generally, a lot of those things that do end up sucking us into money, all of those are sort of influenced by the lack of the things that really do nourish us. One other just a study that I thought was powerful and fascinating. If you ask someone, how happy are you with your financial situation? As you might expect, the more money and stuff that someone has, there is a slight tendency for them to say that they're happy with their financial situation but it's slight. The number one predictor is how happy are they in their lives? Someone who is happy generally is pretty happy with their financial situation wherever they are. And guess what? Someone who is unhappy is generally not happy, no matter their financial situation. So again, it just speaks powerfully to the importance of subjectivity around this and how are we sitting in ourselves and in the world as we then relate to these questions of consumption. Yeah, it's interesting that when you say that, I think about that question you often get from people and especially in like professional settings about what are your goals? What's your five-year plan or or whatever? And I've noticed my tendency is to want to answer those questions with a very simple answer about happiness. Like that feels like my ultimate goal is just to feel happy and satisfied. And I've noticed a lot of people struggle with that answer because they're looking for some other more concrete measure that they can relate to. And I also wonder, wow, does that mean they can't relate to happiness and satisfaction? (laughs) You know, like as our culture and society led to so much disconnect that Maybe they're thinking, if you hit this level in your life, then you'll have happiness. And that's been a thread through in most of the conversations on this podcast, is that hitting a certain level of success or a certain metric or whatever it is, does not 
equate to happiness? I'm curious, does that come in your research too? That like reaching some milestone does not mean or equate to happiness. A hundred percent. What has been found in the research is that generally speaking, no matter how much money we have, if you ask someone how much money they need to be happy and feel secure, it's always about 50 to 100% more than what they currently have. That's even true for someone who just three years ago gave you an amount and is now there. So one of the things they found is that if you ask someone how much money you need to be happy, you will get an extremely unreliable number that is always shifting. If instead what you do is look at the research around how much money do people have, happy are they, that's where you're able to start to then pull out the really helpful statistics about how much we really do need. And like I said, it really is just about meeting your basic needs. And beyond that, you might have these goals and think that once I achieve this or that, it's all going to change. But in some ways, that's like the age-old sad story about, I'm going to really start to live when I retire. And then the person doesn't live to retirement, or then they retire and they realize they've spent their whole lives working and they have these regrets. As you were speaking, I was drawn to, I wanted to pull out this thing in the book where there has been research done talking with people who are near the end of their lives and asking them what they are glad for the most and what they regret the most. And I think these are primarily framed as things that they wish that they had done, but there are five that really emerged as consistently cited. The first is, I wish I had let myself be happier. Very telling. I wish I had let myself be happier. I wish I had stayed in touch with my friends. I wish I'd had the courage to express my feelings. I wish I hadn't worked so hard. I wish I'd had the courage to live a life true to myself, not the life others expected of me. Again, just one point of evidence, but I think a very poignant and powerful one. People near the end of their lives, what are the things that they wish for? And you didn't hear anyone in there say, boy, I wish I'd gotten that final promotion, or I wish I'd finally gotten that extra X, Y, or Z level of income or material things. It's about these things that I think we know intuitively, but we get suckered into a whole other way of thinking and living. It really is about being present with ourselves, with the world, with the people around us, letting ourselves live a truly human existence. It's so beautiful and profound. And yet I think it's what I've noticed. A lot of people struggle with making that all a reality. And so as we begin to wrap up this conversation, I'm curious if someone's listening to this and thinking, okay, yeah, I do understand that on an intuitive level, but I feel so far away from that Almost like they're, you know, if I like a visual or an observation I've had, a couple people come to mind and one in general, I won't call out their name, but there's someone in my life I'm very close with and they have been caught up in the whirlwind of their work for many years and they really struggle with anxiety and have tried therapy and medication and all these different things to help with their anxiety. And yet what it doesn't seem like they're trying is to work less. They work probably more than 40 hours a week, I would guess. They're constantly throwing around the world words like, I'm so busy, I'm overwhelmed, I'm overstretched. And to me, it's like the most obvious thing. You are overworked, but they're so caught up that they don't even know how to stop that cycle. So Let's just say that person is an example, Jeff, because I think a lot of people can relate to that on some level or another, getting caught up in the whirlwind 
Stepping out of it sounds so risky and hard. Is there something you can do that's a smaller step that gives you some progress towards happiness? Yes. I mentioned this earlier, but to emphasize that for some people, there really are major shifts that happen in our lives. And sometimes it comes from just hearing a podcast or reading a book. Sometimes it's about a life-altering experience, maybe a near-death experience. Some of us can and will make dramatic shifts in our lives at certain points. For many of us, though, it really is going to be more about the little things that we do. And the great news there is that each of these little shifts that we make, when we step back a little bit from how much we're consuming, how much we're working, when we're taking a little bit of time, we're spending more time with friends, it's kind of what you mentioned about you start to notice things more. There is a cumulative effect that starts to create ever more possibility. We start to feel things more. We start to not be able to live that way or even want to be around someone that's living that way. We develop these sensitivities that all build on each other. Where the critical juncture might be for any individual is hard to say, but there's a wonderful person, both a psychologist and he does a lot of speaking and coaching, Robert Holden. And one of the things that he has pointed out is that so frequently in his work, he'll be working with someone and they'll be digging themselves out of this hole and they'll be right there at the edge of the hole and they either dive right back in or they dive into another hole. And what he's talking about there is a little bit of what you were referring to about where are the different places that we get trapped. For many of us, we actually get so used to a certain way of being that it is scary and we've come to identify ourselves that way, that it's hard to break into a new way of being. We actually can be addicted to our sadness. We can be addicted to feeling bad about ourselves or relating to the awful things in our lives. Again, it's not to pretend those don't exist, but it's to just for each one of us look inside ourselves and say, what is the discomfort or what am I scared of at this juncture? Am I myself resisting stepping more fully into happiness? One of those greatest regrets that we just read, right, was I wish I had let myself be happier. There are ways in which we actually get to choose these things. And that's available to all of us. And for some of us, it might take a while to break through that and figure out what's really going on. But for most of us, we'll find that there are little things that we can do here and there. I mean, I really feel for the person you described who's tried therapy and they're doing yoga and all these things. But even for that person, what I would suggest is, well, hang in there, keep doing the things that you know and that people are telling you do help. And maybe it's that you just needed a little bit more time to really notice something inside you that you've been running from or that's driving you or why you're stuck in this habit of working so hard constantly. Who are you trying to prove that to, for example? Maybe you just aren't far enough along or maybe it's just going to take a different kind of experience. But I think the number one thing I would say is just to lean in that direction always, lean in the direction of those things that you hear about and you think can be nourishing for you and watch how they build on each other and start to create more opportunities and more magic and more miracle in your life. That's really lovely and poetic. You have a beautiful way of speaking that offers perspective and also acknowledges the challenge in this. It's not oversimplifying. And I've noticed in my work in the well-being space that it does start with that awareness portion. And sometimes that awareness takes the noticing takes a really long time. It's not like you just 
listen to a podcast or read a book, like you said. I mean, sometimes, sure, sometimes we are greatly moved by a conversation like this or a book or a passage or a poem. Absolutely. But a lot of the time, it's adding up towards the noticing. And I've experiences a lot when I went vegan, you know, like there's that joke around, like, how do you know someone's vegan? Don't worry, they'll tell you. It's like, (laughs) you know, being in that animal rights and sustainability world, like there's been a massive shift for me because in the beginning, I mean, I was also 20 years younger, but also there was that like beginning stages of my awareness and unfolding and like everything I'm learning. And it was just so different than the state that I live in now. And just the journey of noticing other people and how it taught me that a lot of people, it takes so many small steps. And sometimes years later, people come to me and say, oh, yeah, I went I went vegan. I'd be like, wow. And it was like this unfolding for them. And then I've also experienced some people have zero interest in it. And it's not my job to, <laughs> at least not anymore. But it, my work is not to convince somebody to live like me. And my work is not to convince them to see things a different way. I think that we all have participated in a ripple effect of everybody's awareness and whether they shift towards our direction or in a completely different direction, we can't be too attached to. So, I'm mostly vegan, by the way. I didn't tell you, so I got to fit into the joke by telling you. I want to share two more things before we go. One is just, I do want to acknowledge that for many people, there will be a period, for example, perhaps 10 years or more where there's been something that's just kind of constantly always there that they haven't been able to get beyond or they haven't seen. But so often, then it happens. I've seen that in so many people. Some people, some things come quickly, move right along. Other people, you might feel like you're stuck for 10, 20, 30, 50 years, and then something just shifts and you see it differently. And with that, the potential absolutely shifts. And so for that to just perhaps be a little gold coin or button that people can hold on to if they're feeling a little bit stuck just in the same rut, and I'm trying everything, right? It happens every day that some new insight or something gets released or just something had to be worked on or held for a certain amount of time or you had to just finally get so frustrated or have it happen again and again. The other thing I want to offer is that Bell Hooks and many others offer this as the greatest barrier that many people experience to the journey of loving themselves more and releasing some of the shame and negativity is, again, not only the culture that we're in that encourages that, but we think that it makes us a better person if we're tough on ourselves or negative. Oh, I'm not going to let myself off the hook. 100% of the research shows that it's the exact opposite, that the more loving and accepting and generous and compassionate we are with ourselves, the more that we are able to change and move into sort of the different things we want to be, to leave behind the habits we want to leave behind. When our baseline is I'm wonderful and amazing and oh my gosh, I just did that or oh my gosh, I do that. I want to change that. Everything becomes so much freer and a possibility is so much freer the more that we are rooted in a place of self-love and self-compassion. And so for everyone out there who's listening to this who might actually be trapping themselves in a place of feeling like I need to be hard on myself, maybe gently, slowly, we can release a little bit of that as well and recognize that you are spectacular and gorgeous and brilliant and creative. And maybe there are all these other ways that you would like to improve or do things differently, but that's the baseline. And you have a right to feel that and move in the world feeling that. 
and have that be part of your connection with everything that you're doing and everyone that you're encountering. And it will actually help you not only be happier, but to move more in the direction of being the kind of person that you want. I think that is a place that many people often get stuck and the researchers say the number one barrier for a lot of people in terms of experiencing more self-love is that kind of judgment. So if anyone out there can release a little bit of that into this possibility of what self-love and self-compassion has to offer, that can be a beautiful grace as well. Thank you for that encouragement. And you mentioned the word rooted in there. And and I was thinking as as you began this final words of wisdom, this time abundance and the time that it takes to shift. I was reflecting on the cover of your book, which for those listeners who are interested in reading this book, Reclaiming the Sacred, is linked in two places. And held up by Jeff, if you happen to be watching the visual of this, which I told Jeff, I don't know when that'll be out, but one of these days I'll be back on uploading videos to YouTube. But anyways, the Reclaiming the Sacred book and Jeff's website are linked in the description of the podcast. So right there in your podcast player or YouTube, if you happen to be watching there, as well as over at wellevator.com, W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com, where there is a full blog post with all the resources. I mean, Jeff mentioned numerous people on the show that we'll link to that's impacted him. And maybe we'll even find that that yoga teacher you described who I, I was tr- racking my brain, but I don't know if I'd ever heard that story about the yoga teacher and self-hatred. So that would be a good one. I will get her name to you. Oh, good. Thank you. I'd love that. I'd- and I appreciate you mentioning the book because yeah. I will say this was over 10 years researching and writing this book. And there is a tremendous amount of wisdom in there. And it's along the lines of what we've been saying. It's some of my own thoughts, but it's over 1,500 citations. That's why it took me over 10 years. So in terms of talking to the people out out there about possibilities in their lives, I would highly encourage everyone to get a copy of this, even if it's at your library or you buy it, and just open it up to different places and see what speaks to you and see what doors open, thanks to you just taking a moment to dive into the wisdom that these thousands of researchers and writers have put together and then I've collected for you in this book reclaiming the sacred. Yes. And even looking at the cover, which is what I wanted to reference, Jeff, as a beautiful reminder, when you say thousands of citations and being rooted in all uh, in yourself and this wisdom, there's parallels to the cover because the redwoods that you chose on there are the second oldest living trees. And if you've never had an opportunity to visit the Redwoods, I couldn't recommend it enough. I've, I've seen them a few times in person myself. And it's really a majestic experience. But that reminder that these trees are often thousands of years old, I think on average, like 2,000 to 3,000 years old at their current state of being. And that's a really long time. And when you were talking about the small steps, if you've ever planted something in a garden or looked at something sprouting, you see how there's so much happening below the surface that we don't even know. And then one day it pops up and then it starts to grow and grow and grow. And it can take many lifetimes. So for us, while we may not as human beings ever (laughs) go beyond much farther beyond 100 years old, we can equate that and kind of do the relative to the tree, whatever the math would be there, (laughs) how long it takes for this beautiful, sacred, 
majestic thing to grow to the heights at which we witness it. And then in those places, we can look down at the ground and imagine how many things are underneath the surface and equate that to our own lives of what's below our surface and how long will it take and what is the journey and being grateful for the abundance of time, whatever that means for us in our lives. So you've touched upon so many beautiful things, Jeff. It's really hard to end a conversation like this. And that's why I will link to your website in the description too, for someone who wants to follow the journey beyond the book with you, because you offer so much to the world. Thank you. I appreciate that. And I think my final words, what I want to say is that I am often asked how optimistic I am about our society and about humanity. And what I can wholeheartedly say is that I am so incredibly optimistic about individual possibilities, the possibility for each of our lives, for each person out there listening to this, so optimistic about the potential in your life. I think that is a wonderful place for us all to start. What a better note to end on, the optimism. It's a great, great reminder. Thank you for this conversation. Thank you, Jeff. And wishing you and everyone out there all the best. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.